Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Electables. This is Doug Thornell. As always, I'm joined by super producer Michael Peliquin. Mike, how you doing, my friend? Doing well, Doug. You went out on a little vacation on us. Where'd you go? Kind of, kind of. We uh, went away to Deep Creek Lake uh, in Maryland um, just for a couple days and uh, um, just getting away. It's the first time I've actually been out of... uh, (laughs) I mean, I've been out of my house, but it's the first time I've been out of Maryland, D.C., you know, the Maryland, D.C. area, although Deep Creek is in Maryland, but like going gone more than you know 30 minutes from my house in a long time so yeah i actually went out to deep creek uh a few weeks ago and it i was just shocked by how much cooler it was up there i mean it was oh yeah it's beautiful yeah it's amazing it's great it's uh i went there along about eight or nine years ago for my buddy john bernthal who was uh uh, an electables guest uh for his bachelor party so this is slightly different <laughs> with my family, but uh, nonetheless, it's great to get away. Um, but it's also great to do this show. Um, yeah. We've got a great guest uh, joining us today, uh, my very good friend, uh, Jim Papa. Uh, Jim is a partner at Global Strategy Group. Uh, <clears throat> he runs the public affairs practice there in D.C. Jim is a just a longtime top operative and advisor within the Democratic Party, as well as to progressive organizations, um, <clears throat> corporations, uh, nonprofits. Uh, he's worked in the White House in a, in a very senior position in the Obama administration. He worked in the House uh, for multiple uh, uh, members of Congress, including Rosa DeLauro. Uh, this, you know, I, I got to let everyone know. Jim gave me my first break uh, on the Hill when he hired me to be a press assistant for uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, uh, who represents uh, New Haven, Connecticut, many years ago. Um, And uh, so, you know, if not for Jim, I may not have this podcast. (laughs) Okay, now I have to interrupt because that's not true. That part's (laughs) not true. Uh, But yes, that's where we... Yeah, uh, well, that's where we worked together uh, the first time, and it was fantastic. And I'm the lucky one. <laughs> so Jim, Jim's worked for Jim worked for uh, Rahm Emanuel, the legendary Rahm Emanuel for the Democratic Caucus. Uh, we worked really closely together when I was at the DCCC, and he was over there helping uh, frontline members. Uh, really, has just done it all in politics, and he is launching a new podcast. Of co- with our producer, Michael Peliquin and Kenny Day, uh, and it's called Staffer. Uh, it launches September 3rd. Um, and Jim, tell us a little bit about Staffer and, you know, what listeners can expect um, uh, when they when they tune in. Yeah, great. Uh, first, let me say thank you for uh, having me on The Electables. Uh, I'm a listener uh, and a fan of the show and of yours and Adrian's. Um, Staffer is really sort of an ode to working in government and politics at any level, federal, state, local. Um, I had such a meaningful and um, transformative experience as a staffer on Capitol Hill uh, and on a campaign and in the White House. And all the folks who I worked with feel the same way. And it gives you a set of skills um, and puts you in situations that really, you know, hone you, make you better um, for anything that comes next. 
And so that's the uh, that's what I um, think about being a staffer. And so I talk to folks who have been staffers and gone on to do really interesting, amazing things. So tell me about one of your you worked for, as we mentioned, Rosa DeLauro, Rahm Emanuel. Um, um, I'm, I'm blanking on your chief of staff to uh, yeah, Rush Holt of New Jersey. Rush Holt, the uh, the. the uh, at the nuclear physicist, right? Or uh, is that right? He was a physicist, not yes, a nuclear physicist. physicist, but a physicist. Yes, physicist, right? Um, he was on Jeopardy too. Um, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so t- tell me about one of those memories from your time on the Hill that is that still is with you. Um, we all, I think, we all have <laughs> several when we've worked there. But what, what's one of those memories that really has like stuck with you? Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many. It is hard to pick one. But one of the things that um, I really appreciated um, about two of my jobs and, and how they connected, when I was Rush Holt's chief of staff, um, it was my first time sort of in charge of a, a member's whole operation. Um, and that experience, and I did that for four years, um, really prepared me for the job after that, where I worked for Rahm Emanuel. And we had just, when I worked for Rahm, we had just taken back uh, the House majority uh, for the first time since we had lost it in 94, uh, coming to, uh, you know, new Democratic majority in, in 2007. And my job in the Democratic caucus was to work with those newly elected freshman Democrats um, to get them reelected two years later, to do all the things right in their first two years so that their constituents would see their value and, you know, want to reelect them, despite the fact that they came from really tough districts. And we met with the chiefs of staff uh, every Monday morning in the uh, House Democratic Caucus conference room. And that group of people has turned out to be one of the best um, uh sounding boards and kind of group of comrades that I could ever hope for. I learned that being a chief of staff to a frontline freshman was a different animal uh, than being a chief of staff to any other type of member, including my own experience as chief of staff to Rush Holt. And, you know, every day walking into the office for these folks was sort of a fresh opportunity to commit political suicide. <laughs> and right. <laughs> they right, and so they had to do everything right and make no mistakes, and um, it was fun. Uh, so people would come in every uh, Monday morning and throughout every day and say, "Here, here's a great idea that we just executed. Maybe you know we could share this idea." Um, every day there were people who had incoming where there was a crisis that had to be solved, and. You know, every week somebody would also come in and say, hey, here's something that we really screwed up. We weren't prepared for it. We got this, you know, question or, you know, this circumstance. How should we deal with it? And as a group of professionals, we would talk it through and and figure it out together. So it was it was fantastic. Um, and, and I will say most of the people who I know who are staffers, they work on issues that they care deeply about. They work for people they care deeply about. Um, but they also work with people that they become very close to, that become good friends, uh, that become mentors. And it's a, uh, it's a unique uh, experience for that reason. The, the frontline members, and, you know, I think to, to give folks, a, a, you know, a, a sense of what they go through, they have – so 
most members of Congress represent safe seats. Rosa DeLauro represents a safe seat. You know, I work for Elijah Cummings. He, repre he represented a safe seat. Chris Van Hollen, Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, all the big names in leadership, most of those folks, they all represent safe seats. The frontline members, and there's a small number of them, um, but they're obviously critical to the majority. They are the majority makers, as the speaker calls them. Um, they have to, they're dealing with, as Jim pointed out, just constant. So for the first, for first thing is, and, J, and Jim and I have been in these meetings at the D-Trip, every quarter, uh, the frontline members, at least they used to, would come to the DCCC and sit down with, at, when we were there, Jim, it was Rom and Chris, and I think Debbie Wasserman Schultz and DCCC staff and go over why they didn't why they didn't reach their fundraising goals that quarter yeah or some of them a lot That's of them right. did right but yep. it was you know there's this constant pressure to raise money right there is um po political uh question there there are these this political tightrope that they're walking in these districts where they've got to keep their democratic base um enthusiastic about them but then they also can't lose the appeal of swing voters that help them win. Um, and they're just dealing with all the bullshit from the NRCC and from their Republican opponents. And they've got and then they've got the obligation of the job. It's incredibly hard. And, you know, it's sort of like, I, you know, after working with them, Jim, I love your thoughts on this. After working with them, you sort of wonder, like, why would they why would they want that job? You know, I mean, uh, it's yeah. so it, it is and it's so I mean, it's somewhat thankless, but, um, it, yeah. you know, they are, you know, I, I just I have a ton of respect for the for I have a ton of respect for all members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats for getting out there and running. But the frontline members in particular, you know, um, both Republicans and Democrats, those those people in those swing districts, they have so much they have just a harder job to do. They do. I mean, the the moment they step foot, I mean, really, the, the day after election, none of these folks get to sleep in the next day, right? You, you know, we, you know, what we immediately do uh, late on election night, you, you know, we win, we celebrate, and then we're like, hey, we need you to be someplace public starting at 6 a.m. so that you can be thanking people with, you know, with some campaign supporters as they, you know, walk into, you know, a, a grocery store or a bus stop or what have you. Um, then they need to th call and thank all their donors. They need to be thinking about, okay, what committee assignments uh, do I want? Who do I need to coordinate with? How do I, you know, work with the delegation? There's all this stuff that happens and they got to hire up, right? They may not necessarily bring their campaign staff. Uh, some may, but, you know, not everyone. So they've got to interview all these folks. They've got to come for orientation. They've got to cast votes in a leadership election. It just never stops. Then once they're sworn in, Votes are beginning, you know, as, as we saw, um, you know, fairly recently, that first vote is for speaker. Well, right. that can, right. That can be a very, uh, you know, uh, defining vote. Um, their very first recess, which happens, you know, just a couple of weeks after they they get there. I remember the NRCC running radio ads in all of their districts talking about how horrible they were. And they'd been in office like three weeks. Um, right. So it just the, the pressure never lets up on these guys and as you and, and, and women. And as you said, uh, 
the fundraising and political demands are extreme. Um, one the, the the function that you know I tried to play, and actually I think um, the you know today's frontline freshmen have, are just an all star class. But how can they utilize their you know what are the functions of the congressional office? How are you going to demonstrate to your voters, as you point out, the base, and also those swing voters? Or sometimes Republican voters who you know voted for the other party's presidential candidate, but also cast a ballot for you. How do you how do you build that reputation? And there were a couple of things that um, we emphasized. One was write you know the dream uh, endorsement editorial that you would like, and the rules are you can only cite three characteristics that that actually penetrate about who you are, and up to three accomplishments. That's it. So this can't be, you know, a five-page essay um, because that's what you need to focus on. Everything you do needs to affirm those three characteristics, and you're probably going to have to put about 85% of your time into three accomplishments if you want to be able to distinguish yourself. And how does your legislative program uh, ladder up to that? How does your earned media communications plan? How does your franked mail plan ladder up to that? And your, you know, your, um, your own communications, your email, your social media, et cetera, then your constituent service uh, function, and lastly, your schedule. Where are you spending time? Who are you meeting with? Where are you going, et cetera? All those things have to be organized in a way that drive your message, because um, otherwise, if it's if it's loose and you and you waste, you know, half a year pulling things together, well, you've put yourself, you know, in a substantial hole that you need to climb out of. Jim, take us inside of the White House during 2009 and 2010. You were um, the uh, deputy director for Ledge Affairs. Um, I was over in the House, in the House Democratic leadership. And that was, in my recollection, probably one of the most, probably one of the busiest times legislatively in the, in the history of this country. Um, talk to me about that, what it was like in the White House over there at that period of time. Yeah. Um, you're, you're right about like the consequence of that era. Uh, I mean, you remember, and all of us who are living through that time remember very um, uh, clearly just how nerve-wracking it was to experience the fall of 2008, the collapse of the economy, the freezing up of the financial uh, uh, system. And we all were looking over the precipice of uh, a, another Great Depression. So when we, you know, when, when I was hired to come over uh, and do legislative affairs for the White House, like we all knew the stakes were extremely high and we needed to make laws quickly um, just to make sure that we didn't fall over that cliff. Um, in the end, that, that two-year period um, I saw written about as you know, the most consequential Congress since the Great Society. So it was wonderful to be there at that time. My role, I was a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And, and, the, and the legislative affairs office has two teams, a House team and a Senate team. Um, the, 
the House team, uh, both teams have five special assistants each. And in the House, you know, we were assigned our members by committee. So at any given time, I had between 75 and 85 Democrats and Republicans assigned to me, as well as a number of committees. Um, proactively, obviously, my job is there to represent the president. I'll never forget the the first time um, I was in a conversation with a member of Congress who was pressing me on something. And I uttered the phrase, I am telling you on behalf of the president of the United States. And I thought to myself, oh, man, that, you know, <laughs> it, it, right? Like, one, I can't believe I have the opportunity to utter that phrase, but also, like, what weight that has. And I can't say that lightly. Like, I got to know I'm right. And it's got to be all it. the right when to say it and take it all the way through. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, proactively, we're, you know, I got to get votes out of that as many as I possibly can for the president's agenda. I have to represent him and the administration. Um, and reactively, you know, I need to um, listen to their concerns and objections and their priorities. Um, I need to represent like what Congress is doing and thinking back at the White House. The Office of Legislative Affairs, um, I read in a book, was described as an ambulatory bridge across a constitutional divide. And it's such a great description because you do start to feel, um, one, we were, you know, welcomed and it was exciting for Democrats who, you know, had the House and for a time, a very brief time, even had 60 votes in the Senate. You know, we knew that there were possibilities um, and that we had, and the stakes were just enormous. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had been, as we discussed, a caucus staffer. I had floor privileges at that time. Um, and the House of Representatives does not grant floor privileges to staff for the White House, which was frustrating when you're trying to whip a vote because it certainly would be easier to be on the floor. But it's actually something right. I loved is like one of those small little details that the House of Representatives is saying, you know, you know what? It's our business in there. You're going to stand out in the hallway and talk to people, you know, in their offices or, or uh, you know, anywhere but the House floor. Um, but it was wonderful. You know, and also I'll just say internally to the White House, um, passing health care was such a high priority. And it was always a challenge. I mean, there wasn't a day when we thought, okay, you know, this is on a downward slope. We, you know, we're, we've got it. Every day was a was a slog that, you know, we in legislative affairs had an elevated voice um, when discussing, you know, some strategy or tactics internally. Um, you know, if something was going to be problematic for a swing vote, we could voice that and that would be really heard. Um, and every resource that the administration had at its disposal was um, available to us, right? So if we needed to, you know, do an event in somebody's district or bring them on Air Force One or, you know, uh, the president would meet with people in the Oval, we, um, you know, we could, Secretary Clinton, you know, we could have her place phone calls to the right, uh, you know, people. So like every cabinet secretary, every uh, every resource that we had, we could utilize to move the ball forward. And trust me, we used them. Um, you know, every single one we tried to deploy so that we could make our case in the most effective way. Right. And that was... Potentially, the president 
you know, fueling up Air Force One and doing an event in someone's district or in a key state that was um, figuring, you know, I think so, it's so important that um, member that particularly House members localize their these issues for constituents. We, we tend to look at these things in a national perspective, but like for all of these local members, particularly frontliners, they've got to go, they've got to be able to go home and explain what w- what's in the Affordable Care Act and why it helps people in their specific district. And I remember doing, and I remember with the help of the, you know, the White House, just doing a lot of briefings specific to these individual members districts um, so that they could be armed with the right, you know, talking points and data to be able to go back home and, and make their case as to why that they should, why they're going to vote for the Affordable Care Act or Wall Street reform or the Recovery Act. And um, take us, Jim, take us inside some, you know, we talk a lot about the mechanics of the, of campaigns on this show. We don't, we, we actually haven't gotten into the mechanics of a congressional or Senate office. I should also say you worked in the Senate under Tom Daschle, um, uh, actually with my brother. Um, and, um, but take us like, what's the rhythm of a staffer's day on Capitol Hill? What does it look like? Like take us through like waking up in the morning to going to bed at night. Sure. Um, well, you know, getting out of bed and reaching for the phone is undoubtedly the first thing and catching up on, you know, it's like internal a fear that you miss something, right? It's Absolutely like- right. Absolutely right. <laughs> it's like what what has come in, um, you know, either from staff or from, you know, is there a reporter inquiry in here or how did that story land? Right. Or is right. there a new story? Right. So there's all of the sort of the fearful um uh, you know, things that are incoming that could be looming. But also, uh, you know, one way I like to describe um, good members of Congress is they read in good staff, they read the newspaper every day thinking to themselves, what is the federal solution I could bring to bear on this problem? Or what is the next thing that we could do to, you know, advance the, the solution here that's, you know, that's still missing. And that is another reason why people have to read the news so closely because they should, you know, maybe by 10 a.m. there should be, you know, an email from the chief of staff or the LD or somebody saying, hey, I saw this article on X, you know, um, what are we going to do about that? Can we send a letter to somebody? Can we place a phone call to the cabinet secretary? Um, is there a legislative solution? Uh, do I need to go visit or need to call somebody, uh, you know, on the ground? So that is, that's in part the, like, the trick to localization because Washington is going to do certain things that, um, you know, are going to make news on a local basis, but it, particularly in these frontline offices, they win because they are not a traditional Democrat or in the other, a traditional Republican. They have, they have demonstrated and, and communicated to constituents that, hey, I know what you think of that typical brand, and I believe a lot of that, and I'm motivated by a lot of that, but the parts that you don't like, I'm a little different, and here's how. You've got to explain that here's how. And one of the ways that's done is being extremely local. Um, sometimes people talk about it as like being a mayor, right? Uh, right. What are the local issues that you are being caught trying on? 
So let's say by 10 o'clock a.m. you've got, you know, uh, a, a program from the, some sort of action step that you're working on. The boss is probably uh, still in district on a Monday and they've got some events. Hopefully all the things that they're, you know, that they're doing today have already been prepped for, like the, the memos in the book. They know who's coming. They got their remarks. Everything is buttoned up. Uh, logistically, the driver's on time. Everybody is, you know, or, or if they're getting themselves there, they know where they're going. Uh, somebody's going to meet them there. Uh, they know what time they got to be back in Washington if there are votes that week. Um, and then you know when they're going to arrive. What are the vote recs, uh, you know, for, for what's on tap that week? Um, I remember one member of Congress had a, uh, a designated uh, like a, a form that for every vote recommendation, they had to answer questions like, um, you know, who's for and against it, um, both uh, on a like kind of uh, national uh, perspective, but even more importantly, like locally, who are the local organizations that would be impacted and do they like it or do they hate it? Um, what are we going to say about it? Uh, are we issuing a press release on it? So every vote had to be thought through and sort of validated and put through the lens of the local um, impact and then how to communicate about it. Um, you know, there are always people coming into a congressional office for meetings, uh, you know, constituents and, and companies and organizations that are there to express their point of view and lobby for something that they want. Um, You've got to, you know, you're always planning the next day. You got to make sure that the boss has time to do all of the official work, so committee hearings and uh, and, and and take member level meetings, um, attend the things that you know mem only members do, like caucus or conference meetings or leadership meetings. And then, of course, they got to do their their political. Uh, you know, they got to have time for their political stuff. It's got to be call time. Um, if there's if there are you know if there's political communications to be uh, to be reviewed and approved, they got to do that. If it's campaign season, they may need to go you know record an ad. Um, so it is just a a real barrage of of incoming information. I know you know members find it. Uh, daunting and sometimes frustrating at, at times to always have like, you know, five minute increments of focus um, where it's hard for them to just like, you know, if they're in a committee hearing for two hours, that's somewhat of a luxury, right? Um, because their focus is in one place for two hours. A lot of times they are, you know, being asked to review this, approve that, talk to this person in very short increments. And it's the staff's job to make sure that the member's time, which is the most precious, precious resource uh, that exists, is utilized in the way that is maximally effective, that the member is only doing things that only the member can do. If something can be done by a staff member, it should be. Um, and over time, you'll see good staff operate not just uh, – you know, with strategic smarts and a high or level of organization, but efficiently. And, you know, when, when staffs lose that efficiency, um, they start to, you know, waste time. And that's how they start to like struggle against the tide of everything that needs to be done. It's just not going to get done. I want to talk about, uh, something that is, um, it, it, Probably not too familiar for folks who don't who are um, not in the weeds uh, uh, of sort of congressional 
uh, Capitol Hill political life, and that's a, a leadership race. Um, we we all understand. I think a lot of people understand campaigns um, in the context of running for Congress or running for Senate or obviously running for the presidency. In the House of Representatives, in the Senate, but in the House, um, I want to focus in on the House. They have leadership positions. Jim has Jim worked in leadership. I worked in leadership. To get into to become part of leadership, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you have to run for it and conduct a campaign for to win that position. Jim and I worked together on one leadership race that I think neither of us will ever forget. Um, 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, but just can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what is a leadership race and like what what's involved with it? Um, just sort of I want to I want to take folks behind the, the curtain on this because we're going to hear a lot of talk uh, in the coming months, particularly after this election on both sides of the aisle about leadership positions and leadership races. And we've already seen one member of Congress on, on the Democratic side um, uh, mention that he's throwing his hat in the ring for um, a leadership position. There's, you know, talk about what does Nancy Pelosi do? What does Steny Hoyer do, et cetera? We've heard talk on the Republican side that Kevin McCarthy might be in trouble. But Jim, tell me, talk to us about a leadership race. What is it? What What's involved with it? And why are they so interesting and special and fun to follow? Yeah. Um, so I'll start with just the election of the speaker because it's unique. Um, you know, right after a new Congress uh, is sworn in, the first thing they they all stay on the floor, and the first vote that they have to cast is for a speaker, and each party puts someone into nomination, and then the clerk calls each member by name, and they have to stand up on the House floor and shout out the name of the person that they are voting for. It is extremely unique. That is the only, uh, you know, election of its kind. That's not the way Mitch McConnell is elected, you know, majority leader of the Senate. The only people that vote for Mitch McConnell are in the Senate Republican Conference. Um, in the House, both par both parties' nominees for Speaker get there because there were, you know, caucus votes internally. And I just want to mention that because. Um, one, the Speaker of the House is the Speaker of the whole House. That is, everyone voted, whether or not they voted for the ultimate Speaker, everyone voted in that election. Um, and when a Speaker um, is then in charge, right, of the entire House and, and you know, what bills come to the floor and in what form, et cetera, um, they only became Speaker because they had uh, a caucus that put them into contention. So that is a constituency of theirs. Their caucus is the constituency that put them there. Um, underneath Speaker and and the leader of both parties, there are these other offices, as, as you said, Majority Leader, Whip, etc. Um, running those races is a very behind, mostly behind the scenes activity. Um, there are obviously news stories and news shaping to be done, and there are events to be done, but it is very personal. So, you know, having been involved in them as, as you have, Doug, um, candidate calls every single member uh, of their caucus. Um, they ask to meet with every single member of their caucus. They, you know, they've been around long enough that they have a lot of friends. 
So they have a team of people that becomes their whip team. Um, that's often people from their delegation, um, often people from committees. But if, you know, once you get to know the House of Representatives better, um, if you were to sort of float above the House floor and just look down, um, you would see the social networks um, and how, like, they sort of form swirls and eddies of people. Um, so there was always, you know, something called the Pennsylvania Corner, right? It's where Jack Murthy used to sit on the House floor. Um, and it was, it was sort of, he got the name because of Jack and because the delegation hung out there, but it wasn't just the Pennsylvania delegation. There was a group of mostly male members, but uh, also some women members who hung out there. That's where they gathered. Um, you know, you'll see other social networks of friends, uh, uh, you know, grouping together and just chatting between votes. Um, those types of friend networks um, become whip teams and both, you know, all the candidates will have them. Then they have to come up with a rationale for why they would be the best for that position. That includes speaker, but it, you know, it includes caucus chair. It includes every single role. They have to say, here's why I'm the right candidate. Um, here's what it reflects about our party. Um, so, you know, something like um, making sure in the in the Democratic uh, caucus anyway, that our leadership reflects our membership in terms of its diversity is critically important. Um, so, you know, members who are voting will have that as part of their calculation. Um, of course, this is politics. So they're going to be thinking, what have you done for me? Um, you know, have you supported my campaign? Have you supported my legislation? Will you support me in my attempt to get on this committee or that committee? Um, so there is, you know, there are transactional elements of these campaigns and they last a long time. <clears throat> they used to be brief. Uh, now they last often over a year and <laughs> yeah. right. They do. And every interaction, right. Matters because it's documented. If you, it is documented if a member is slighted in any way and tracked. Um, who are we inviting to the press conference? Who are we asking to sign on to this letter? What's a way? How can we get to this, you know, this member or this group of members and say, no, no, we, you know, we're actually a better ally of your set of issues than our opponent. So there is constant sort of uh, favor seeking and and opportunities for allyship happening all the time. And then, of course, I mentioned the press. There's like backstabbing and, and, and bad narratives <laughs> being like pitched against you all the time. Yeah. Um, Support letters dropped to roll call. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a uh, it's a stressful uh, but really interesting form of an election um, that's extremely personal. I you know, I thought that if there were it would be really fascinating um, for there to be some sort of like eight part Netflix documentary on the, on the inside campaign to win one of these leadership positions. Now, oh, obviously so good. it would be so good. And, 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 and I think Jim, I mean, Jim nailed almost all, it nailed all the pieces. I mean, it is a super personal, um, we talk about Congress being hyper local. This is even, this is, you know, a lot of the same, you know, the mechanics of a campaign, the tactical stuff in campaigns, they're applied here as well. It's just a much smaller universe, right? We're dealing with a couple hundred people that you're trying to, you're trying to win votes from. 
And, you know, a good leadership campaign, you know, you've got a, you've got a, you're tracking and you've got information on every single member and both, you know, the personal information, you know, where they live, their, their spouse's name, their kids' names, you know, uh, but also you're tracking, you know, how much money did you give to that person from your leadership pack? Um, you know, what are the, you know, have you done an event for them? Um, you know, uh, what are the things that they like? And um, when you're in the middle of these races, your, your whole day as a staffer is trying to think of ways that your boss can help a particular person in the caucus um, so that down the road, that person remembers that your boss did something nice for them. That's right. And it doesn't end. You know, like once you get a leadership position, uh, there are there are staff who's, you know, who are almost dedicated to that. They are the keeper of these relationships and a tracker of the favors. So the yeah. small thing, right? I mean, there are really successful, critically important people um, who seek these opportunities, build these opportunities and, and keep score. Um, and in a weird way, it, I mean, I'm I'm sure some people would hear and be like, "My God, I can't believe that, that you know what a waste of of energy and time." It, <laughs> a, it right. I mean, it actually in the end helps the function of the organization because when it comes time to like you know get a vote that is you know re, that's leaning against us, but we need that vote. Well, the first thing you ask yourself is, who's the person who's going to go talk to them? Well, who knows them best? Who's closest to them? who has done the most favors for them, right? You pick the person to whip them that is best situated in the leadership to do that. Um, it's, yep. uh, you know, right? And it's one of the reasons why the democratic leadership actually fun has functioned in the majority exceedingly well, um, because there are complementary relationships throughout that leadership that um, really uh, come out when the chips are down and they need to win a vote. They've got a lot of um, good people to go to to kind of make the the closing argument. I think people, you know, I, I in my my view, uh, Speaker Pelosi's uh, been the most effective, best speaker we've had in, you know, a long time, 50, totally 60, agree. 70 years. You know, Absolutely. I mean, maybe even, she may be yes. even just she'll go down in the record books as maybe the, one of the most effective ever. Um, Completely. But agree. you just hit on. Right. Like you, you, you hit on, I mean, one of the reasons why she is so effective beyond being super smart and strategic is that she knows her members, Republicans and Democrats, but Dem Democrats in particular, she knows their met her members better than anyone. And she also, um, she also has their trust in a way that, you know, um, no one else in the caucus really has in order to make tough calls, right? Like in healthcare, when we were doing healthcare, she had to make the call. I mean, we ended up voting for a public option, but Jim, you remember when we lost the Senate seat, we had to go through reconciliation and house members had to vote for a bill. Progressive house members had to vote for a bill that did not have a public option in it. And that was something that Nancy Pelosi had to sell to her caucus. And no, I don't think another member could be able to do that. Um, and we've seen in recent history, you know, more recently, um, her do the same thing. 
And I think it's largely due to just the fact that she knows her caucus members so well. And he, she knows how, you know, whether it's the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, um, the, you know, AAPI. I mean, she just she knows everyone extremely well and they all trust her. You, that is exactly right. I mean, she is a maestro, historic figure. She is outstanding at the job. But I think you've put your finger on something that's so important, and that is trust. I mean, she does have to make tough calls. The members know that. I mean, and this is a group of people at the apex of politics, right? I mean, these are folks who are really good at politics, and they can look at her and be like, oh, she's really good. Like she is better at strategy. She knows the issues, you know, more deeply. Um, she can connect with members in a way that very few others can. And when she has to disagree with people, they know that she is authentically herself. And sometimes like in every, you know, every leader has to do this sometimes say, you know what, this is suboptimal for me too. You think, you think I didn't want, you know, the bill that we passed out of the house? I've been working on this stuff for 30 years. Like I, I wanted it too, but now we have to make a choice. Do we take, you know, one step forward when we wanted to take two or do we stand still? And I need you to take that step with me. She is so consistently fair with people and, and um, transparent with her members that she gets them um, she gets their buy-in, I guess is the way is the way to put it. And I don't think and I think that that is a point of real struggle on the Republican side. That's why John Boehner hasn't, um, you know, was basically run out on a rail. Um, why Speaker Ryan had his limitations. It's not that they um, I'm not calling them like dishonest or unfair with their members, but they were not sort of of the party in a way. Uh, that they could look at Boehner, who had spent a you know a career making deals and passing laws successfully, and that used to be viewed as a good thing, um, and then all of a sudden he was a rhino and a squish, and right. when right and when Paul Ryan had to bring things to the floor so that you know the you know we wouldn't uh, default on the debt or or shut the government down, people viewed him as as caving to Democrats. You need you need your members to look at you and say you know what they they do the best. Uh, they are the best of us, and they are going to get the best deal possible. At the end of the day, they got to believe that. And if they don't believe that in their leadership, ultimately, those leaders fail. So I, I could just I could shoot the shit with Jim on on <laughs> on house memories, probably for another couple hours. But um, I I know we're we're running up against the time limit here. Before I let you go, Jim. Um, Talk to me about some of your um, thoughts on how the convention is has been going for the Democrats. Uh, oh, yeah. The um, president gave a great speech last night. Uh, president Obama, I thought, was really strong. Uh, the first lady uh, was really strong. We've seen Jill Biden. Um, Kamala Harris, obviously, was 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 great. Give me your give me your thoughts on how it's going for the Democrats, especially in this new in under this new format. Yeah. Um, First and foremost, I want to tip my cap to all the people who are involved in uh, executing this new type of convention. They are redefining uh, how to do a convention, 
and they are succeeding uh, under extraordinarily difficult challenges. So I've, I've been so impressed with the quality of, of what has been put on air, the, the discipline of the message. Like each night was, was concise and it came through. And they are showing the, the country what the Democratic Party is. It is um, aspirational. It is hopeful. It is diverse in geography, in its uh, you know demographic composition, in the types of people we put forward of you know all walks of life. Um, I thought I, I think they've done a really beautiful job. Um, I agree with you about uh, the speeches so far. I don't think there has been a dud yet. You know, I mean, starting with the first night with Michelle Obama, we had uh, you know Jill Biden and Bill Clinton the next night, and then last night was really a, you know a moving night. I I loved hearing the president President Obama talk about the enterprise of our democracy, and that that is what is at stake. And that everyone needed needs to lean, you know, all the way into this election and and beyond. Um, and for those who feel cynical or skeptical or like, you know, the you know, the democracy is failing, the way he addressed past generations and groups of people that were ground into dust um, and yet still like found the strength. And, and uh, you know, to take the democracy and bend it uh, toward justice and equity. I mean, it was beautiful. Um, it, you know, it, it certainly looked emotional to deliver. It, it, it delivered an emotional, uh, you know, impact. So I, I highly recommend people go back and, and watch some of the speeches or listen to them uh, if they didn't watch it last night. But I, I, I really um, think they're doing an outstanding job. What do you think? Uh, look, I think um, it's been it's been well produced. I think it's gotten better each night, um, and um, I think they've been disciplined with their message. Um, and uh, I think they've set the table very well for Joe Biden. Um, you know, I everyone's you know I know people. I've seen some articles about the ratings being down, but I mean, is anyone surprised by that? I mean, we're not. Right. This is not a typical, and the reality is, is like the TV ratings may be down, but so much of how we, you know, so much of uh, how we consume media today is different than it was eight years ago, even four years ago. So uh, the TV ratings are, to me, you know, only part of the full story in terms of who's seeing this because people are engaging in many ways on social um, you know, on, on the, on digital platforms. So, you know, people are seeing this, the message is getting out. I think, you know, if you're Joe Biden, you got to be feeling really good about, um, heading into accepting the nomination on Thursday night. Um, I think the president did a great job. I think, uh, you know, I think he just really sort of, he really captured the, the gravity of the position and in a way that other people, no one else could. Right. Um, uh, and so yeah, I think it's been really solid. I think it's been really solid. And, you know, I think, you know, the bar should be extremely high on the RNC convention coming up next week. You know, you've got an incumbent president who other, you know, many people talk about having one of the best digital operations in history. Yeah. Um, he's got all the tools and all the advantages of incumbency. Um, he's a celebrity, a reality star. You would, you know, I think uh, we, we should expect 
that the RNC convention is going to be super well produced, um, tell a compelling story, engage you, you know, and that, you know, uh, especially with Trump's emphasis on ratings, that the ratings this year for the convention, for their convention should be better than 2016. Yeah. You know, so expectations on on Trump and his team should be very high right now in terms of what they're doing and how they present the president and his record next week. Uh, because, look, they've had four years to think about this. Joe Biden and his team have had, you know, six, five, six months. Yep. Can I tell you a funny convention story if we've got yeah, time? Yeah, of course. Of course. So in, in 2000, um, I uh, was working for Rosa and she was uh, one of the highest ranking women at the time. And so she had uh, podium time. And uh, what we decided to do was to uh, organize all of the House Democratic women uh, into a moment. And so Rosa would have like, a, you know, a couple of minutes of a, of a speech and all of the Democratic women would be there as well. Now, in 2000, you may remember um, Joe Lieberman was on the ticket. It was Gore Lieberman. Uh, I'm sure you remember because you were uh, you, <laughs> yeah. don't, you don't need to be reminded of that. Um, so anyway, so that meant that Connecticut and Tennessee had these great placements on the floor of the convention. So right up front was the Connecticut delegation. Well, the morning of Rose's speech, uh, uh, our chief of staff, Maura Keefe, um, says, hey, guys, you know what? We need to make signs, um, like handmade signs for people to hold up while during Rose's speech. Um, let's, you know, very quickly go out, buy the supplies, and we'll meet in this like cavernous hall and we'll paint them and, you know, we'll get them going. So we rush out, we find, you know, some store, we buy all the supplies, we bring it back. And we're in this warehouse, you know, painting all these signs like, you know, go Rosa and, you know, the, the, that type of stuff. Um, so then, you know, we've got lots of other stuff to do that day when we come back. Um, we grab the signs and we get all the approvals that we need to get because, you know, as you know, getting a sign onto the convention floor is not, you don't just walk on with a sign. It has to be right. approved by the right people and it has to be sent out at the exactly the right time and handed out and then collected, et cetera. So anyway, we get the green light. We run down to the Connecticut delegation and we are, you know, handing signs out. We're like, hey, take one and pass it down the row, right? And so we're handing out these signs and, uh, I, you know, I was responsible for like a certain number of rows. And so I handed out enough to get down like halfway the row and then I ran to the other side. And as I then, you know, I, I do the first half and as I begin the second half, this man looks back at me from the other side and he, his face is enraged and he holds up his hands, which are covered in paint and goes, they're wet. We... <laughs> <laughs> we hadn't left enough time <laughs> for the signs, all the signs to dry. <laughs> oh, man. I, I just took the remaining signs and sort of slinked away <laughs> off stage. <laughs> Which actually, there there is a there is a segment that I like to have on my show called "In the Vault," and it asks people uh, when, as staffers, like did they just completely screw up, and like yeah. what do they learn from it, and you know. Um, can I ask you to tell me a story of a time where you just completely botched it, but, but so, somehow made a recovery? So, yeah. Okay. So back in 2000, I was working for the Gore campaign, as you mentioned, and I was in Missouri and, um, I was, you know, at that point there was, this was during the primary and there was only three people in, uh, for the Gore campaign in Missouri. And I remember when I first got there, this was after the Iowa caucuses, the Gore campaign sent me like a campaign in a box and it was like three pencils and 50 sheets of letterhead paper that said Gore on it. And like, 
you know, a couple bumper stickers. I mean, that was how <laughs> sort of like budget this operation was. So we, you know, so we were putting together, I was putting together this endorsement event um, with, with all of the members of the Missouri uh, legislature, getting them to endorse Gore, which, you know, at the time, Bill Bradley was from Missouri. So there were some ties there. And so, you know, it was, it was not the easiest thing and there wasn't a huge campaign presence. So, you know, I had to really hustle. And so, you know, I got all these people to endorse. Um, I set this thing up to do an endorsement event on the front steps of the, of the Capitol in, uh, Jefferson city. Um, and I had, you know, so I had, I had all of these members out there ready to go and there was no press there. And, what I had realized is that the campaign, which was in Nashville now, never sent out a media advisory. They never <laughs> sent out, they didn't never call the press. <laughs> and so I'm just saying, and I had like, so it was, it was certainly, you know, it was one of those things where like, you just like your stomach drops to the floor. Yeah. Right. And you're yeah. just like, and you're just, I mean, and so I was, you know, I was apologetic to all the members and, you know, it was, it was only going to be a 15, 10, 15 minute long event anyway. So it wasn't the end of the world for these folks, but it was just like, for me, I'll never forget that feeling. And, and it just taught me that, you know, no matter what is in your control and no matter what is out of your control, you have to be aware of everything. You know, as a staffer, you have to be, especially if you're being tasked to lead these things. It wasn't my job at the time to get pressed to that event. You know, that was the campaign, that was the campaign's job in New, in New, in Nashville. But I needed to know, I should have known that they were doing it. I should have bugged them. I should have called them and asked for, you know, conference RSVPs, which press is coming, which outlet, you know, how many cameras are we going to have? Right. And this was before I'd ever done press before. So there were a lot of questions I didn't know how to ask. I was 22 years old, but at the time, you know, I should have known that I, I should have asked. And that's one of the things that I still do to this day is that regardless of my, you know, I, I, I'm not a micromanager, but I do, I I do want to make sure that they're, you know, that everything is in place. And so something like that never happens again. It was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. Yeah. My stomach dropped as you described it. Yeah. Right. And, and but you make such a good point of like what you, what you take away from that is one, you got to know everything and how can, where do things break down? Like yep. you just, right. You become expert as a staffer in how could this go sideways? And yep. then we got to solve for that. Yep. The great Jim Papa, my buddy, my friend, uh, beloved by so many people, uh, and, um, uh, at a super, at a super powerhouse firm with a couple people who've already been on Jeff Pollack has been on. Um, I think we've had someone else from your, your firm on the, uh, electables, but my, my very close friend, the wonderful Julie who at that firm, um, and the, uh, Lee and now the host of staffer, which is coming up. Uh, just, can you give us a set? Who's going to be on? Give us a break. Some news here. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you, <laughs> sure. Our our first guest, I'm pleased to say, is Simone Sanders, uh, right. top uh, advisor to yeah. uh, Vice President Biden. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. And has a terrific staffer story and a really interesting book, So, which we awesome. talked about. Jim Papa, thank you so much for coming on The Electables. Come back anytime. Doug, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, um, and I'm such an admirer of yours, and um, you are a good friend. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, buddy. Um, to my producer, Michael Pelquin, the best producer in the podcast business. If you're looking at 
launching a podcast, uh, please check 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 out Michael. Uh, Michael at airsnext.com. Him and Kenny Day uh, are the best. Um, Michael, uh, you take care of yourself. Uh, as always, stay safe and healthy. And um, uh, to my listeners out there, we'll catch you next week with another episode of The Electables. Bye.